day. We are in the third, the third sort of, as I build it as like a movie in Genesis 3. And in this, you guys know I like movies, in any kind of trilogy, the third movie is usually the most unique because you already have the first and the second that you get a lot of information from. So the third movie has to do something different that the first and the second didn't do. So normally in the third movie, they give you other background information that the first two didn't give you so that when you get back to the actual scene of the movie, you have a little bit more detail. Now, obviously, when we're talking about the Bible, the Bible does not give us a lot of background information or we piece things together based on what verses actually say. And sometimes we fill in the blanks and we could be wrong about that. But as long as it doesn't distract from what the Bible actually says and the theology that it teaches, we're free to speculate to some degree of what may be happening. So in this sort of third movie, if you will, we need to have a flashback scene. And the hope is to fill in some detail so that when we get to the actual scene back to the garden, we may have some questions answered. So here's the flashback scene. Here's the point that I want to make and then I want to explain why I believe this. I believe that all of this started, the rebellion, Satan, rebelling against God and corrupting Adam, Eve, and the, the seraphim-like serpent. I believe this started because Satan was the first created being that God made, which made him unique and uniquely arrogant among the other supernatural beings. I believe that he's the first of the divine beings that God created which made him unique among them and uniquely arrogant enough to think that he can oppose God. Let me give you three reasons why I believe this to be true. The first reason is the descriptions of Satan in the Bible. When we get descriptions of other supernatural beings, we're usually given details on how they look. Prime example, Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Here's what it says. Here's Ezekiel's vision. He says, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the earth and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the one, like the sole of a cast foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze under their wings. On their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had faces. So you see, listen to this. It's describing creatures that many of us, maybe if we like Chronicles of Narnia or, you know, or you're thinking like Hogwarts, like, hey, wasn't one of these creatures in Hogwarts? Verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. 
The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had a face of an ox on the left side. And the four had a face of an eagle. That's a crazy looking creature from what I'm describing. Now, when we see it, we'll be like, oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. But right now, it's like, wow, what in the world was the Lord thinking? <laughs> so it says, such were their faces, right? So here you're giving this graphic description of what these creatures look like. And because God created animals, some of them are replicas of these creatures, we can kind of say, okay, I know what a lion looks like, what a man's face looks like, what an eagle looks like, I know what calf legs look like, and you kind of construct this image. But when we get descriptions about Satan, we're never given details about how he looks, but who he is and what his motive was. None of us but don't believe it. What you see about Satan with the red with the, with the, and the pointy tail with the pitchfork, that's post-enlightenment. It's a post-enlightenment attack on, you know, Christianity that created this false perception of what he looks like. The Bible does not describe him in the way that he looks, but it describes him in the way he was created and what his motive was. Let's return back to Ezekiel 28. Here's what it says. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And y'all know how I feel about carbuncle. <laughs> y'all was waiting for me to say something, too. LaShawn, thank you for sending me the picture of what carbuncle looks like. That may not have looked like that, though. This was a different carbuncle. This was before the fall, right? It says, and crafted in gold were your settings. and the great. That's not telling. It just tells us he, was, he had a lot of jewelry. He was the first rap artist, all jewelry, chains, gold rings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So listen to this. These, these stones were prepared on the day you were created because you were the signet of perfection. You were an anointed cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. We get descriptions about how he was created and the beauty and majesty of it, but we don't get, does he have wings? What are his feet like? What are his facial features like? We don't get that description, but other supernatural beings we get. Because the Bible is not concerned with what he looks like because of who he was and the status he had. It's concerned with what he did. And it's drawing attention to the uniqueness of his creation so that his rebellion is also unique. Like, wow, you had all of this? We see these descriptions. Now, many of you might say, but yeah, but doesn't Daniel and describing the beast with ten horns? And those aren't a description of Satan, per se. Those are symbolic, under, they're, they're symbolic descriptions to help us understand how powerful he is. It's not saying Satan has ten horns. Just like the Bible talks about the seven spirits. That's referring to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit isn't seven spirits. So these are descriptions. That's not describing what he looks like. I think he was the first created and was so unique. So the Bible is focused on 
This is how he was. This is what he did. The second reason why I think he was the first divine being created, which made him unique among the creatures, among the divine beings, and unique in his arrogance, was the exclusivity of the rebukes that he gets. In Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, he says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Well, that makes sense because he's in a direct conversation with the Lord, ready to accuse Joshua for his sins. But then in Jude 1 and 9, we see this scene. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Now, we know in other narratives in the scriptures that the Lord allowed prophets and other supernatural beings rebuke people and other beings. But in the Bible, for some reason, the Lord rebukes you. Even Mike, the archangel Michael, who is powerful. He is the angel of war. Even he does not pronounce a blasphemous judgment. And he could. I rebuke you, Satan. But he said, no, 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 no. I don't think they're allowed to rebuke him. Only the Lord can rebuke him. There's a certain respect for who he was, that even angels will not rebuke him. The Lord rebuke you. That should say a lot about people on earth who act like they're binding Satan and all that stuff. It's like, ah, uh, Satan's probably not really worried about what you think, friend. Could be me, though. I rebuke you, Satan. All right, well, let me go. It's like, you rebuke me? Let me turn up your temptation a little bit. Well, I know what you thought yesterday. I'm not preaching that today. For some reason, only the Lord is allowed to rebuke Satan. I think it's because he was uniquely created by the Lord, and that's who he rebelled against, so only the Lord rebukes him. Third reason. In our Bibles, in our Bibles, English translations, all our Bibles are English translations from an original language. In our Bibles, Satan is the only obvious name mentioned. Even though we know other angels rebelled, in our Bibles, none of them are ever named. They're not named. Satan is the only obvious, and I'm saying obvious because there are other supernatural beings mentioned, but to us it sounds like Beth Emdesh from Olga. They're weird names that we'll get into later on in the series. But it's the obvious name. It's the obvious theme. But we know other angels rebelled. Jude 1.6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal, eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we get other angels rebelled. Why don't we get a lot of information about them? Who are they? What are their names? Now, in two weeks, 
when we get to Genesis 6, there's other literature that the Jews had that named angels. But that's not included in our Bible. We'll see that in two weeks. But here, we know other angels rebelled. 2 Peter 2.4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Why doesn't God, why is it not important for us to know that other angels, there's plenty of other angels that rebelled. Some of them are being in punishment. These angels have names. God said in Job, I named the stars and the sons of God. These people have names. But we don't know who they are. We just know they rebelled. The only person that the Bible seems to care about is Satan. His name, we all know. We even know the Latin translation of it, Lucifer. His name, everyone knows. All the other angels? Uh, I don't know. If you watched, um, was that Denzel Washington movie where he was, uh, huh? Fallen, and it was Azazel. Well, that's a real angel's name, but that's in a different book that the Jews had in Enoch, the book of Enoch, which we'll look at in two weeks. We don't get any information, but we just know angels sin, but the only emphasis is on Satan. Revelation 12, 7, look, it says, Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels. See, they, all the people who fought are connected to him. They're his angels. No names, just Satan's angels. But Satan's name we know. We know how he was created. We understand his motive. We get all of that, even though all these other angels rebelled. The Bible that we have is a translation, an English translation of the inspired word of God. And even though we know that other angels rebelled, Satan, the devil, as we know him, that might not even be his name. That's what we know him. In fact, Revelation says that who is called Satan. He's called that by us. He might have a different name. We know other angels rebelled, but Satan is the only obvious, consistent, supernatural being named. I think this is because his status among the divine beings was unique because he was the first created. And even those beings have some measure of respect for his position and his strength. His betrayal is deep because it was someone close to God. So it's only right that he would possess Judas, someone close to God, to enact another betrayal on earth. Same pattern for him. Close to God. Judas was important. They don't talk a lot about Judas, but he was important. Judas carried the money. He made sure he did all of that. He was important. Yeah, they getting it in back there. <laughs> Whatever Mike said, be blessed, be filled. Whatever Mike. Sometimes you need that Catholic move. That move. As I said a few messages ago, I think he was jealous of Adam and Eve being given a whole kingdom. And that propelled him to overthrow God's kingdom. But I also think 
Satan was particularly offended at Eve. Because she was, to some degree, even more unique than him. I think he was offended at her because to some degree, Eve was more unique as a created being than him. In the sermon I did almost two months ago on the sermon called One Flesh, how we know, how, what does it mean to be made in the image of God and to be one flesh and how does that connect to Jesus and Ephesians 5 and the church? Here's what I said. I asked this question. Why did God make Eve instead of Steve? I asked that question. I said, technically, as far as we know, from what, what's communicated to us, we can only go by what's clearly communicated. We can speculate about things that aren't, but we're sure about what is communicated. All the angels are sons of God. That's masculine. Those are he's. The Trinity, God, the Godhead, are all spoken of in masculine terms. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is called a he. John 16. I will send a helper. He will. They're all masculine. As far as we know, there are no female divine beings that are close to God or even in with four faces of whatever those creatures look like. So why wouldn't God create an Eve, a Steve, instead of an Eve? He has perfect unity with the sons of God and within the Godhead. He could have created males with the capacity to have children. But God decided that a new creation was necessary for Adam. Why? I brought you back to Genesis 2. When the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and opened up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. In the creation account, this is the most unique creation, Eve, the woman. We know that God made all the animals from the ground. Genesis 2 tells us he created the beast of the field and Adam named him. We know he made Adam from the ground. And Adam was unique from the beast because God breathed into him a life-breathing spirit, many interpretations as to what that means. But it was a sense of a, a living, eternal essence. He doesn't breathe anything in the Christian, in, in, the, in the animals. When he breathed into Adam, he breathed into all humanity. So when God makes Eve, he doesn't breathe into Eve anything. She already has it. But he created her uniquely different. And all the angels are watching this. They're all watching, like, what is he doing? They have no idea. They're just celebrating. What is he doing? Okay, Adam is laying down. He opened up his body, like, what is he doing? He's <laughs> like, are y'all watching this? Yeah, what else are we supposed to be watching? Like, we watching this, right? Everybody's watching this. He takes this thing out. They have no idea what's happening. They get, okay, he created them from the dirt. Okay, these kids are the dirt. But then with the woman, he's like, wait a minute. He takes her from to bone, and all of a sudden she becomes a woman. And they're like, what is that? <laughs> They've seen nothing like this. Nothing like this. She's unique, and they're trying to figure out what is happening here. And then when they see Adam flesh of my flesh bone, <laughs> they're like, oh. Oh, this dude is spitting poetry right now. 
He got, he, William Shakespeare got it from him. She's unique. I said then that being made in God's image is a Trinitarian distinction. The way that we describe the Trinity, which obviously God would know how we're going to describe the relationship between him, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And the way that we describe the Trinity is this. They are different in person, but of the same essence. Well, I think Eve is made in a Trinitarian distinction. So she's flesh. She's flesh and blood from him. She has the same breath of life, so there's, there's the same essence. Same breath of life, same flesh, but they're different in person. Her roles are different. Not lesser, different. Eve is the helper, remember, the same designation used of the Holy Spirit. So she's unique. And divine beings have never seen anything like Eve. Let's get a sneak peek into two weeks from now. Here's one of the proofs of this. Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So these beings are watching women and being like, hey, we don't got nothing like that up here. <laughs> like, who is that? Like, look how they, they look so good, I'm leaving. I'm leaving here and going down there. They've never seen anything like Eve. All of these made her, to some degree, more unique than Satan. His uniqueness was jewelry. The drip. Her uniqueness was identity. Made in the image of God. Lions and tigers and bears. All of these, I believe, is why Satan targeted her. I'm going to corrupt the most unique beast of the field, and then I'm going to corrupt the only uniquer creature that has been created. I'm going to go with her. I'm going to get her. Lastly, last reason why I believe that Satan is particularly offended at Eve is because the punishments of Adam, Eve, and the serpent are all directly connected to the sin that they gave into in the garden. Each one of their judgments, their punishments, are all connected. So here's what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3. He says this, verse 14. He said, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. No, we talked about last week, the punishment of his pride and wanting to be above God made him below God, right? You wanted to rise up over the mountain of God, now you're down to the earth. So that's part of it. See, it corresponds directly to his motive. I'm going to sit on top 
Now you're on the bottom. You're on top of the bottom. But here's what it also says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Notice that the primary em emphasis of enmity, which also means hostility or hatred, the primary emphasis is between Satan and Eve, not Satan and Adam. Even though we know Romans 5 tells us it clearly puts Adam as the one who is responsible for sin coming into the world. So Jesus comes as a second Adam, not a second Eve. But here, the primary punishment is you're going to have hostility towards her. He will be hostile to Eve. His hostility is a consequential reality that's directly connected to his jealousy of Eve that I believe being a uniquer creation. Now, it's possible that he thought if I can corrupt her uniqueness, that God would destroy her. He would destroy her. She's from the dirt. He can just destroy her. But that will also ruin what he tried to establish. It's possible that he thought that. But instead, God said that a man will come from the woman and destroy you. So he thought maybe God, possibly, God may destroy her, but God said, no, she and the man that comes from her is going to destroy you. By default, you know what God is saying here? I'm forgiving her. I'm forgiving her for her sin, but I'm not forgiving you. From the beginning, I'm forgiving her, this lower creature that doesn't have the intelligence, the power, any of the things that divine beings have. I'm forgiving her, but not you. Satan's hostility is understandable. But that hostility extends to all women. Because at the time of God saying this, they have no idea when this is coming. When is the he coming? When is it? So every he that's born, they got to pay attention to. Especially if he looks like he loves God. Able anyone? He has no idea, so women become the means in which his kingdom will be overthrown. So again, the uniqueness of this creature that God made is now going to at some point have a male child that's going to overthrow me. I am tired of these people, tired of this woman. Now take that thought and think about all the mistreatment that women have received throughout human history in every culture. The only culture that we're aware of where women were not mistreated was where Wonder Woman is from. <laughs> they gangsters over there. They don't even want dudes over there. You land over there as a male, spears are coming your way. You like David playing a harp for Saul, ducking spears. 
Apart from that, throughout human history, we can trace the hostility and the mistreatment towards women, and now we have a theological supernatural base for it. This creature that God uniquely created is uniquely the creature that's going to overthrow the enemy. So when someone asked a question about feminism last week and is it satanic, there are definitely elements of it that it is. But boy, when you look at thousands of years of women being mistreated, I understand why they are offended. I understand why they're offended. As a black man with a history of being mistreated in America, I understand why people will march and offended and don't wait for the facts. I ain't saying it's right. I'm just saying it's real. I believe Satan was the first being created and the loss of his uniqueness coupled with lesser beings being given a whole kingdom to themselves set in motion an attitude of rebellion against God and a heart to corrupt his kingdom and the people that were given that kingdom. Now, back to the scene of the crime. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. With that backdrop, Potentially true. Let's get back to the scene. Beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's a lot going on here. But here are two things that we know just from a, just a cursory reading. Two things that we see. One, Satan talks to Eve and to Eve only. Talks to Eve and to Eve only. And we know that Adam was there. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam's there. Satan saw God create them. Saw Adam was created first. He understands how authority works. I think he was created first and is unique among them. He gets it. So he reverses that established authority, what we talked about last week, and he talks to Eve, and Adam is right there. Doesn't even care that Adam's there. I'm talking to her. Three immediate results happen after they bite the fruit. Three things we see happen after they bite the fruit. And I think these things were transmitted to all humanity because they were the first human beings. Humanity would then have some of these attributes. Here's the three that we see. Those of you who've been around for a while know where I'm going. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So here are three attributes you see after they bite the fruit in verse 6, verse 7. And they sewed fig leaves for themselves. So they're no longer dependent on God. They're no longer dependent. They don't think, oh, this way God made us, we're good. They're like, no, I don't like this. 
So the first thing that comes from them is independence. It's true. Now we're deciding. When he says no good and evil, he doesn't mean understand that he means determine it. So you'll be like God deciding what is good and what is evil. Not taking what God said is good and evil as law, but you deciding it for yourself. So the first thing they do is decide, I don't like the way, I don't like being naked. So they create loincloths. See, independence. The second thing we see is fear. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves. And then to his credit, he told God, I was, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So you see fear. But a fear of God in particular. They didn't fear God at all before this. But isn't it interesting that Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam doesn't say, I was afraid because I ate from the fruit that you said not to eat, and now I'm going to die. That's not even a consideration in his mind. He said, I was naked, and I hid myself. But he wasn't naked because he made loincloths for himself. So what he was saying was, I was naked in the way you created me, and I hid myself by putting loincloths on. I'm hiding, I'm afraid. Not because I want to be punished. That's interesting. The third one we see. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said to the woman, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we see blame. So here you have Adam and Eve in perfect unity, flesh of my flesh, bone, perfect unity. But now it was her. It was her. He didn't say, you know what? I failed. I ate of the tree that you said not to. Remember, Adam was the one who got the command. Eve didn't. God created Adam and told him the command. Eve wasn't alive yet. She wasn't created. He should have said, I failed. But he said it was her fault. <laughs> she said it was serpent's fault. And God said it's all of your fault. Blame. Independence, fear, blame. These are all characteristics we've all inherited. Many of us, when confronted of our sin, will find any circumstance to blame except take responsibility for it. We'll blame someone else. We'll blame that we were tired, that we weren't feeling well, that we had a tough day. It's like, you know, I was just wrong. I chose to sin and give in to temptation. And we do not want to admit that. You know, it's funny about Adam saying I was naked and I hid myself. He cared more about how he looked than what he did. And many of us care more about how we look to other people than how we look to the Lord. We'll come to church and fake and do all this stuff and pretend like it because we don't want people to judge us. Some of us only come to church so people don't say, where you at? We, we, we care so much about what others think, but not the Lord. He knows the real us. The Lord, when he judges, he's not going to judge based on my observations of you. He knows the real us. He knows if we're really genuine or not. We can't fool him. 
when we stand before him, he's not going to be like, oh, 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 my bad. I thought you, that's, he knows the real us. I know you were genuine here. You were not. You raised your hands on Sunday, but you complained in your heart all day, all week. He knows. We inherited all of this. We're independent. We want to do our own thing. It's hard to be told. Some of us more than others. It's hard to be told what to do. It's hard to be dependent. I know people that will struggle with stuff and just don't want to tell nobody, don't want to be dependent on nobody. We're just independent. We've all inherited this from Adam and Eve. Now, I said earlier, the punishments of Adam and Eve and the serpent are directly connected to their the temptation. So we looked at what Satan's sin was. It was pride. It was, I think I'm better than God. I'm higher than God. I'm less. And it was jealousy. And then we see independence, fear, and blame flushed out in all of us. So we know what Satan's sin was. What was Eve's? What was Eve's sin? Let's go back to Genesis verse 6. So after Satan, remember, Satan says basically two things to Eve. Verse 5, Satan says two things to Eve. This is all his temptation. This is all he said. He asked that God say, you shouldn't eat from the tree. It was, a, it was a feeler question. It wasn't a trick question. It was a feeler. Did God really say that? Let me see what she says. And then she gave her answer. And then he said two things. Here's what the temptation. One, you will not surely die. So there are no consequences if you eat from the fruit. And two, you will be like God, deciding good and evil. Those are the only two things he said. You won't die. You'll be like God, deciding good and evil. That was all he said. And then it goes to Genesis verse 6. And here's what happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, keep in mind that free will existed before sin was a reality. This is free will. She's, you know, God didn't create us as robots. We make decisions. And the tree was there as with the prohibition to not eat from it to test free will. But here's a question we have to ask ourselves. Where did Eve get these ideas from? The serpent didn't say, aren't you hungry? It's good for food. He did say, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the wise part, is it, it was desire to make one wise, but, but where did she get these ideas from? And then she gave some to Adam. Where did she get these ideas from? And then the boldness to just give him some. Keep in mind that she added an extra precaution to not eat from the tree. She said to Satan, God, God said, we can't even touch it or we'll die. She said, God said not to touch it, but he didn't. God didn't say that. So how does she go from, I can't even touch it or I'll die, to it's good for food? Just like that. When all Satan said was, you won't die. And even in her logic, it doesn't say, well, he said I wasn't going to die. 
She, that's not even a part of her logic. How does she go from, I can't touch it, to it's good for food, just like that? What's happening in Eve? Keep in mind, there were a bunch of trees that she could eat. So it wasn't like, man, we're hungry. You know, like on one level, right? The Israelites, right, when they're in the wilderness, we'll see this later. When they're complaining about being hungry, that makes a little bit of sense. A little bit. They're like, look, we had these meat pots. You know, they're sitting there like, remember that, remember that meat we used to eat in Egypt? Man, we used to put that little broth in there. I mean, they're, they're off the Rachel Ray. Like, look, we got this broth. Or this, uh, yeah, we're making recipes. They remember recipes. Remember when, remember when we used to make that? It makes sense why they're a little offended, right? They're like, man, but, but right here you have all these trees to eat. You can eat from all of them. Even the tree of everlasting life. You can eat from all these trees, just not this one. She, you had plenty of food to eat. What do you mean it was good for food? Every other tree was good for food. This was the one tree that wasn't good for food. So how does she go from, I can't touch it, to, hey, this is actually good for food? Verse 6 is exposing Eve's desire. I believe Eve's sin here is entitlement. It's the sin of entitlement. Now, here's what entitlement means. Belief that one is deserving of or entitled to certain privileges. It's entitlement. Satan's with pride. I think I'm better than this person. Entitlement is I deserve Sometimes what I shouldn't. And verse 6 is the justification for her entitled attitude that was probably already there. This is the reason I think the precaution of not touching the tree was added. If you think about this for a moment, Eve said that God said, that God said something he didn't say. It's one thing to just be like, we're not supposed to touch it. Okay, maybe misunderstanding. Maybe Adam told her that, maybe. Possible. Maybe she just said, you know what? We're not supposed to touch it. But she said, God said not to touch it. So now you can speak for God things that he didn't say? So now you're entitled to say God said something that he didn't say? So why the extra precaution, though? Well, the Bible obviously doesn't tell us. But if entitlement is the real issue, which I think it is, then I think verse 6 is describing what Eve already thought about the tree. She had already thought this way about the tree. So she put an extra prohibition there to keep herself from giving into it. But because this is what she was already entitled, she already felt like, man, we should be able to eat from this tree. When provoked, when provoked with just a little, hey, you won't die. When provoked, it was easy to just give in, just like that. Now, we don't know how much time passed. We get no indication. But the way that the Bible lays the narrative out, it doesn't sound like Eve contemplated and they thought and they wrestled and decided they tossed and turned. It was just like, there's no consequences for this. Almost like that's all it took 
for her to be like, you're not supposed to touch it or you die, to not even caring about that anymore. I mean, if you tell me, hey, listen, if somebody tells me, hey, Kurt, hey, don't do this because I'm, if you tell me I'm flying, and I get a couple people like, man, Kurt, I just had this dream that you died in a plane crash. I don't think you should go. Hey, listen, uh, I'm going to catch the train out. I need to reschedule my flight. If enough people tell me I'm going to die, and I feel like, man, something ain't right. The Lord might be speaking. But God, they, she thinks God directly told her, and it doesn't matter because in Eve's heart, there was already a desire to eat from that one tree, even though you had all of this. So when she, when she was just nudged just a little bit, the entitlement kicked in. You know what? It is good for food. It is a delight to the eyes. And then it's desire to make one wise. Desire to make one wise? You just said you can't touch it or you'll die. That's not a good desire at all. Eve felt like she was entitled to have the fruit that she was forbidden to have. And so the consequences are connected to her entitlement. Let me explain. Genesis 3.16. Here's what God says to Eve. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, most of us believe that this passage is saying that God will increase the pain connected to giving birth to children. And that Eve will want to control her husband, which will cause conflict because he will rule over her. We would say that the pain is connected to her giving birth to children. That's not exactly what's going on here. I would submit that this isn't about physical pain at all. That God is saying something else. So there are three different consequences that are arranged as clauses in the Bible. So the first clause is, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. The second clause is, in pain, bring forth children. And the third clause is, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Those are three different consequences, but in the Bible listed as three clauses. All right? Let's look at the first two, because they're connected. They both have the word pain in them. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. For us, pain is pain. If someone says, how you doing? I'm in pain. We immediately think what? Physical pain. I'm hurting. Where is it hurt? But there are pains that are not physical. In the first clause, the first consequence, God says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. The Hebrew word for that is isabon. And the definition of that word is anxious toil, anxious toil, or it could be defined as hardship. It's anxiety. Anxiety is the pain. I'm going to multiply the anxiety about the work. The second clause, in pain you shall bring forth children, is a different Hebrew word, asif. And that can mean strenuous work or it can mean pain. The Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament says this about Genesis 3.16. 
Genesis 3.16 represents a special case in our understanding of Esabom and Esip, both of the two words for pain in, 16 and 7, in, in verse 16. The, tra- the traditional translation renders both terms with words for physical pain. Since Seb refers more to mental than to physical pain, however, this traditional interpretation must be called into question. Meaning, the Hebrew root of that word does not seem to indicate that God is talking about physical pain at all. Now we go to the first clause, first consequence. I will multiply your pain, Isabon, in childbearing. Childbearing is the Hebrew word heteron. And it can mean pregnancy or conception. Conception. This is where it gets interesting. Because if it's translated conception, that's different than bringing forth children. Conception is the act of having a child. Bringing forth children is giving birth. Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament says this about this word and what what they think it means in its context. That the two other occurrences of Isabon, pain, one in verse 17, where God says to, in painful toil, you will work the ground. And and another in Genesis 5, 29, he says, they refer explicitly to physical labor, suggests that here too, physical labor is mandated for the woman. Moreover, the first verb of this verse has two objects, Isabon, pain, and heron, conception or pregnancy. And this is what it says, in the nuanced, and I'll explain this in a second, in the nuanced biblical lexical field, in other words, in the way that the Bible uses language, is what they're saying, in the nuanced way the Bible uses language, especially talking about pregnancy and birth, so in the nuanced biblical lexical field of pregnancy and birth, in the way that the Bible talks about pregnancy and birth, the latter, being pregnancy instead of conception, the latter, I just lost the page. Oh, the latter does not refer to the actual process of childbirth. Since neither conception nor pregnancy is painful in the way the Bible describes it, the Isabon connected with pregnancy cannot mean pain. So what they're saying is the Bible, the nuanced way the Bible talks about pregnancy doesn't usually associate it with physical pain. So when the word Isabon is used, it's not referring to she's going to have pain in giving birth to children. Then they end with this. Thus the meaning of Eseb, pain, in, uh, in pain you'll bring forth children. He said the meaning of Eseb in the text is ambiguous. It can mean labor and work, and intensify that statement of the preceding clause, which means it could be labor and work going with the pain of uh, multiplying pain, or it can refer to psychological stress of family life, or it can mean both, but it does not mean physical pain. So let's read the verse again. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. If we take the words and we apply them differently in terms of the definitions, this verse could simply mean 
I will surely increase your anxiety about having children. And in stress, and anxiety and stress, you will worry about giving birth to children. That's going to increase. It's not about physical pain. It's the anxiety connected to wanting, having, and raising children is what he's saying. I believe this is accurate. I'm going to read, we're going to read one narrative, and you'll see there's a theme in the Bible that I think proves this to be true. 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. I'm going to read this kind of fast. A lot, of, a lot of names here that we don't normally say. But listen to this narrative. Many of you are familiar with this. It'll click as I'm reading it. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jer Jerome, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one, of it, the name of one was Hannah, and the, other, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give his portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was, on, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to the house of Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So here you have a scene where her anxiety about having a child was dominating her life. She even says, great anxiety and vexation. Now think about what she said. This is how significant it was to her. She was like, look, if you just give me a child, I'll give him back to you. 
She wasn't even asking for a child to raise. She just wanted to have a child. It was so significant that she gave him to Eli when he was a toddler. She didn't even raise him. She just wanted to have a baby because it meant that much to her. She was anxious, depressed, struggling. And it was so important to her that even though she said, I want one, I'll give him back to you. I don't even need to raise him. The theme of stress and anxiety in women over wanting children and the relational dynamic with their husbands over children is a common theme in the Bible. In fact, many of the stories in the Old Testament related to women in some way, shape, or form have to do with children, wanting children. This theme of women being barren is huge in the Bible. And you don't see, from what we see, any stories of women being cool with that. This is a theme in the Bible. You see it with Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah. Listen to what she says in Genesis 29. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. All this stress and anxiety, and it's so connected to her, women needing to have a child in the, in the Bible. It's a direct statement from what God said to Eve in Genesis 3.16. That I'm going to multiply the anxiety that you have about children. He's not talking about physical pain. He's saying the emotional pain. You see this all over the Bible. But if we're honest, this is a theme that happens even now. I remember years ago, before I understood what this meant, I used to hear women talk like, man, my biological clock is ticking. I need to get married and have children. There was a sense of pressure, like I need to, because embedded in, in many women, maybe not all, but in many women, is this desire for children, for family. And even though all women are fully, fully acceptable, fully inherited of the kingdom of God, significantly important to the Lord, they can still feel like, even right now, even in this room, not having a child is a source of stress. Maybe not everyone, but it is a theme among women. I never hear guys be like, man, I can't. I'm trying to have a kid. Man, I can't. <laughs> guys be faking like, man, look, I ain't trying. They eventually be like, yeah, I do want a little son. But women care about this in ways that guys don't. I've talked with women who have been grieving over this issue, tried to help them find their value in God, even though they can feel like Hannah. This is not just in the Bible. This is how it is in the world. The child, in many ways, and the lack of having it is a source of stress and anxiety connected to their husbands. It's like, uh, 
this is a result of Eve and her entitlement. You see, Eve was entitled to speak for God and eat from the tree. Now you're going to be anxious about your entitlement to have children. And that's going to cause conflict between you and your husband. That entitlement. This is a theme in the Bible. I think it's a theme in modern society. The last consequence for Eve says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is self-explanatory. In fact, I'm going to just read from John Oswald, theologian, on this passage. He said this. The other half of the oracle about the effect of sin concerns the conflict the woman would experience with her husband. The words represent a struggle for control. Sin wanted to have Cain just as Satan desired to have Peter, but Cain could, not, could master it. That struggle would characterize life from now on. And in 316, we see that it would manifest itself in marriage too. Thus the oracle is saying that the sinful nature of the woman, we would say at her worst, will desire to control the man as Eve had done naively in the garden. And the sinful nature of the man, we would say at his worst, will try to dominate the woman. Human life, even in marriage, will frequently display such a conflict or struggle. It will be the challenge of godly people to remove such tension from a marriage and live above the curse as far as possible. Marriage should not be a relationship characterized by manipulation and mastery. That is what sin will produce in marriage, in a marriage. So the kind of desire and mastery are not ideals to live up to. They will be there naturally. This passage is not speaking of New Testament submission or headship. Those are traits that have to be engendered by the Holy Spirit in the believer to take the sting out of the curse. No, these oracles simply declare what life will be like now that sin is here. And try as one may, there will be pain, conflict, and death. I'm just saying, listen, this is the reality. There's anxiety about family. That anxiety comes out of an entitlement that leads to an imposition of control. It doesn't mean every couple will have this dynamic. It's just saying this is reality now. This is reality now. So how does this connect to the sin of entitlement? Well, Eve felt entitled to take a bite of the fruit, and that entitlement controlled the situation to which she gave to her husband. Now, yeah, he could have not eaten it. He could have. But here's what we have to understand. We live in, we were created for Genesis 1 and 2, but we live in Genesis 3. So we see things primarily from our experience of life and how we see it. And there are differences. Husbands and wives can be independent within their marriages. And you think, well, I don't got to do that because he doesn't. And it's not wrong. My wife doesn't like to go to the movies. I'm there all day. <laughs> They're closing a regal in Bowie near where I live. I'm, 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 I'm greatly offended. <laughs> because now me and the boys have to travel to a father. Uh, 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 and, I'm, and I'm offended. I'm writing my congressman today. <laughs> he could have not eaten the fruit, but we have to understand they were literally one flesh. At this point in time, there was perfect unity. So in Adam's mind, whatever she does, I do. 
we're united. We're one. There's not like, well, you do your own thing, I do my own thing. It's like, this is, this is new. There's no sin there. There's no conflict. They're in perfect harmony. They were in the perfect order of authority that God had established. But Eve felt entitled to eat the fruit. She felt entitled to control the situation and gave it to her husband. And that entitlement will create an anxiety that will try to control Adam and force him to dominate, rule over her. In fact, you see that domination in play in, in verse 20 of Genesis 3. Listen to what it says. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Remember he named all the animals, expressing authority and dominance over them? Well, now here he is naming Eve. I need to name you now. Satan's sin in the garden was pride. Eve's was entitlement. What was Adam's? Well, what was Adam's? Let's go back to verse 6. All it says in verse 6 is, she took of his fruit. Look, the women are like, yeah, get, her, get him. There's <laughs> women in here bitter already. After the, after the service come up here, we're going to talk, we're going to lay hands on that bitterness. That bitterness is not biblical. We're going to lay hands on that. So a lot of women are like, yeah, get him. This one, I'm now you taking notes, right? Look, there was some women that was like sitting here like this. Now they got their pen out, like, go ahead. But what is he saying? Stop joking. What is you trying to say? Look, we don't got that much time, Pastor. Say something. It says, she took of his, of his fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, right? And then you see the Lord in verse 9 says, where are you? Remind you, God knows everything that happened. It's not like, you know, when you, you know, when I think about this, I think about, you know how when you play with kids and you're like, peekaboo, where are you? I can't find them. And they're all laughing and think they really aren't seen by you. Yeah, you know, you do that, ah, I can't find them. Where are you? you know, when you're peeking through your hands, they can't see that, right? God sees all this. He knows what happened, but he speaks to Adam first. He speaks to who was responsible. He said, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. The Lord addresses Adam because he was the first created. But he was also given the command, and he was responsible for the sin that took place. He watched it happen. He watched it happen. So what was Adam's sin? It was twofold. Adam was complacent, and he was complicit. Complacent, this is what complacent means in the dictionary definition. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. So you're satisfied, like you're like, hey, everything is good, even though danger is around. That's what it means. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual danger or deficiencies. He's just chilling. He's watching. For all we know, he had his arm around Eve the whole time when she was talking to the serpent. <laughs> Probably rubbing her shoulder and all that, like in which you behave. Twirling her head for her while she's talking, he's sitting there looking. Probably looking at her like, what's she thinking as the serpent's up? I, I don't know if that happened, but I'm visual. He was complacent. He's complacent. He's not even thinking about the awareness of the dangers around him, which is why he said to God, I'm hiding because I, 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 hid, because I ate from the tree, not because I'm going to die by disobeying you. That danger wasn't even around because he's complacent. He's not even thinking about it. 
And then he was complicit. He was a complicit means. Helping to commit a crime or doing wrong in some way. He was complicit. And he's complacent. And so listen to God's judgment of him. It's directly connected. Here's what he says. And so he said to Adam, verse 17 of Genesis 3, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth you, for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall be eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you are returned. He's complicit. He said, you listen to the voice of your wife. That's God saying you were complicit. You listen to the voice. Now, here's what's interesting. Even though the serpent did the talking that tempted them, God doesn't treat the situation like the serpent is the one he listened to. He didn't say because you listened to the serpent. That's not what he said. He said, you listened to the voice of your wife. Here's the other thing that's crazy. As far as we know, Eve didn't talk. She ain't say a word. They was chilling. Boom. She didn't even say, you want, you want to hit this? You want? She didn't say nothing to him. You want to try this? Take a bite, baby. This is no joke. It's better than that. Remember that fruit we was eating yesterday? No. She didn't say nothing. So she bit it, gave it to Adam. He bit whatever it was, whatever the fruit was. People say it's an apple. They lying. No, 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 apple. She didn't talk. So why is God saying you listen to the voice of your wife? He's saying it because he was complicit. You didn't do anything. You were complacent. You just chilled when she gave you the fruit. It was basically like you, she's saying, here, take this verbally, and you bit it. From God's perspective, Eve was in control of the situation where Adam should have been because he was created first and was given the command. You are complicit, Adam. You listened to the voice of your wife. It wasn't what she said. It was what she did. You followed her lead. And then complacent. You're just casual. You're just chilling. Danger's around. This is danger. And you're like, yeah, man. Hey, this is cool, talking stuff. So here's what God is saying, because you were complacent. Since you didn't do the work you were supposed to do in the garden, now all you will do is work outside of the garden. You were lazy here, now you're going to work over here. You were complacent in the garden, now you're going to die if you're complacent in the earth. You didn't want to work over there, now you got to work over here. Bronx tail, now you can't leave. That's what he's saying. It directly connects to his sin that he gave into. You weren't on your guard there, guess what? Now thorns and thistles are going to be challenging for you. You're going to work really hard now. Out of the garden. In the field. What's interesting, he says, curse is the ground because of you. Don't miss the similarities between what he says to the serpent. You are going to be on the ground. You're cursed above all. On the ground you will be. And he says to Adam, curse is the ground because of you. The ground is cursed because of what he did by submitting to Satan. And so now Satan is cursed to the ground. And so the ground is cursed because of you. And it's cursed because he's there and now you work for him. Since you were complacent when you were working for me, now you work for him. 
Now you have to be attentive. The ground is cursed partly because Satan is cast down to it. And now you have to work hard. You don't have a choice. You see, the supernatural battle has now moved to the natural world. Well, Adam will be fighting against a cursed ground with a cursed divine being who is now ruler of the ground. God's tying all of it in. He's tying all of it in, and it all connects. Okay, here are the consequences of your actions. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Why should we care about this? Because the same way that this is the way God works, this happens is the same way it happens with us. If you don't have time for God and you slowly withdraw from reading and praying and all the things that kind of keep you in relationship with God, you know what happens? Eventually, you just don't have a desire to do it. You think it's just a natural reality because I'm not a reader, but some of it is I just don't give myself to it. So the natural consequence of my actions will be I no longer have affections to go against those actions. I saw people in this church who were members of this church who didn't want to come back to church. It wasn't like we did anything different, but they lost their desire to be here because they removed themselves to some degree, both both because we had to, but then when we were allowed to come back, people didn't. I'm not shaming them, but I'm being honest. I talked with some of those folks. You're not coming back to church because of what? It wasn't like you got a problem with us. It was you just don't feel like you need to be in church. You need to do these things anymore, but you did these things in 2019. If you back away from God and you casually think that that's not affecting you, one day you will not be able to explain why you do not have the passion you once had for God. And you will be like Hebrews 5 when he says you should be teachers of the law. You've known truth so long you should be on staff. But you need someone to teach you the basic principles of how to honor God. This is what happens to us. We cannot play around with, the, with, with a church attendance, with fellowship, with reading our Bibles, with praying. If you play around like that, eventually you're going to lose the desire for it. And it will be, I gave you what you wanted. You gave in to the temptation of complacency. Now you have no desire. You don't have it anymore. We, holiness is not a switch you can just turn on. You can't just be like, God, I'm going to take some time. It's a fight. Ask anybody in here. There are people in this room that, that kind of backed away a little bit for different reasons, and they fought back. But ask them. It was a battle for them to fight back. It wasn't like, you know what, I can't wait to go to church. It was like, man, I'm sitting there debating, like, should I go or not? And then finally, like, nah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And then it's like, oh, I'm, I'm glad I came. I'm glad I came. But this is like, man, I don't really feel like going. I don't want to go. And you think, you know, it's not my fault. It's not us. It ain't because of the way we sing or the way we preach. I've been the same. My mom, she told you I was fearless from birth. I've been the same way since I've been here for 15 years. The issue is not we're doing all this stuff. It's like, man, I just don't have a desire to be in the Lord like that. And people casually do it. And I've seen many people casually walk themselves out of eternity with him. We've all known people who have walked themselves out. So this is relevant for us. The supernatural war. We're in it. 
Because you're alive, you're in it. And then once you believe, you're really in it. We need to be grown and own our faith. Don't make excuses. Press through like you would do things that have no eternal value. The supernatural war is upon us, but by the grace of God, we have Jesus. And so next week, we're going to look at one more little, just one more portion of Genesis 3. Then we're going to just hit 4 and 5 overview, and then we get in Genesis 6 where it gets crazy. The flood is a crazy story, and we'll be there in two weeks. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I, you know, sometimes in these type of sermons, Lord, you know this, there's not a one-to-one verse that says this, but we try to speculate on what we think fills in the gaps for us. And I pray that as I prayed a few occasions to you, Lord, that what my speculations were, if even if they're wrong, they were at least helpful. But Lord, where I was right, then I pray that you would place it on the hearts of those of us who believe that we wouldn't just look at this and be fascinated by the details of a scene that we've read before but didn't see, but that we would figure out how do we apply and cultivate a fascination for the word that you've given us that we sometimes ignore. I'm guilty of it. We all are, Lord. I pray that you would help us and use the insights from your word to give us more of a desire to read and help us to strategize on how to do it. Lord, keep us from making mistakes, the mistake of thinking that we can just casually believe this and make it. Lord, you said we need to conquer to the end. It requires some effort. May you give each of us a godly ambition to grow both in understanding your word, the intake of your word and reading it, And then the doing of your word, as James said, let's be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Thank you for the people who struggle to come back for a number of reasons, some of them very legitimate. But they fought through it and they're here. It is so good to see their faces, to hear their stories. Lord, it is real. This battle is real. And lastly, Lord, I pray for the women in the church who are, who are relating to what I believe to be an accurate interpretation of the anxiety about children, about family, about marriage. Lord, I don't, I don't presume to know your will and why you do what you do, but I know that there are things that seem to connect to even our modern society. And Lord, I pray that you would you would really touch the heart of any woman in this room or who's watching online that feels the anxious toil of conception, of wanting a family. Or if their marriages that feel the anxiety of and the stress of parenting and the dynamic of entitlement and control and complacency and complicit. Lord, I pray that you would 
that you would speak directly to their hearts and affirm your love for them. Lord, you know who's hurting, who feels this. I don't. And I pray that you would tenderly but specifically in such a noticeable way to them encourage their souls, particularly the wives, the mothers, and all the women in the room. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. We do have a few questions um, to get to, so we'll jump right to it. Um, do you know where the characterized image of the devil as having horns, a tail, and a pitchfork, or a goat head, and two hooves came from, especially since you know he's shown to as a snake yeah. in Genesis? Well, the goat head is, is a little bit more biblical, and we'll get to that. It's a little bit more biblical. When you talk about the atonement, where they're laying hands on the goat and send it out into the wilderness, and the wilderness represents where the evil supernatural beings are. So there's more connected. Thank you, brother. There's more of the goat head that is a little bit more biblical, which we'll see shortly. The pitchfork and all of that, that is a product of the uh, Age of Enlightenment, so sort of the Renaissance age, and it was a way that was created 17th, 18th century to kind of mock Christianity. If you know anything about the period of times, you get the Age of Enlightenment was a time, it was the first real like human period of time, at least in the West, where science, uh, logic, and things became more important than faith. And the understanding of humanity and how we got here became more about evolution. So you get things like the scientific method and became about evolution, not faith. So the Bible was attacked significantly during that 200 plus years of the age of enlightenment. And then after that, you get the romanticism period. And then that period is where you create this Jesus who's just like mushy. What nowadays you would call him a simp, right? He's just this mushy, right? This mushy, loving God who's not offended at anyone, just loves people. And now we're in the age of entitlement where everyone thinks whatever I think and feel I deserve and you must treat me according to that way. So it's, it's a product of the enlightenment, this fake kind of pitchfork in the horns, almost like to mock the reality of Satan. I remember the name of the dude who created it too, but I can't remember right now. I know I'll remember it when I'm watching the Super Bowl, like, oh man, I'm gonna put it in the, in the, in the send it to everybody in the church. Hey, his name was, uh, I know I'm gonna remember it. Uh, I think you addressed this, but is it possible that Adam just misquoted God to Eve, and that's why she said what she said about touching? Of course, but I don't think that's likely. Of course, it could be, right? We, the Bible, so uh, let me be clear. I'm giving perspective, trying to understand what's happening, right? The Bible doesn't say what happened, but I don't, I don't think he misquoted Eve. I don't think he did. I think, yeah, I, I think that, there was a desire for that tree. And so this, whatever, either Eve made it up or Adam said it to keep her 
from wanting to go to, to go to this street. I think there was some entitlement at play. We don't know any conversations that happened. But yeah, is it possible? Sure. But the sermon wouldn't have been as fun if I said that. Though, so. <laughs> but yeah, it's possible, absolutely. I honestly, we, uh, to be honest, none of us really know for real. But I think it's, it's helpful to sometimes to have, based on what the scripture does say, kind of say this might have been what happened. Um, the, the next question is, did sin exist before the bite of Eve um, when she lied before eating by saying that God That's a great her, question. Um, and had entitlement in the heart. Did it, did That's it. a great question. As far as we know, the Bible does not attribute that because that entitlement could have been desires. It's a free will desires that she obviously resisted until she bit the fruit. So it says nothing about even her misquoting God. It could, it might not have been a lie. It just might have been, what was, what was, what, here was the, she said God said that, right? But for whatever reason, that's not what's called sin in that passage. The sin was the command that God gave, do not eat from the fruit of this tree. Once they did that, you sinned. But all of the sins that I think they carried with them got put on all of us. All humanity then has a mix of all these different things. Even if it's not fully this, I'm not saying every marriage is this way or every, but it's all possible because of, um, because of that. Um, the, the next question is, um, do you have any insight on why God put a sword at the garden to guide the way to the uh, tree of life instead of just getting rid of the tree? So the Bible says nothing about why. So, you know, you, when you ask these questions, I'm speculating. Mm -hmm. I am not saying the Bible says some of these things. I'm just saying this is what I think, and it could be helpful. But I'm not contradicting what the Bible does say. But the Bible doesn't say anything about that. But here's what I would say. Based on what the sword represents throughout the Bible, the sword always represents the word of God, right? So it's the cherubim who's there with the sword. If it's a real sword, it's connected to God's word and God's word saying you can no longer be in this garden. So you're asking a question I was going to answer next week, but I was going to say this next week, but since you brought it up, I'm going to say it because people get mad at me. Come on, Pastor. So I think the sword... <laughs> I think that people get offended, right? I think this, and I appreciate your offense, but some of y'all need to talk to me afterwards. All right, so uh, I think the sword represents uh, the flaming sword typically in the Bible. Look at Hebrews 4, 12 through, it represents the word of God. So I think it was just a layer of saying, God's word has said you cannot enter back in this place. And the sword is sort of a literal, but maybe symbolic representation of God's word because it's like the sword can go everywhere. I mean, I, I, I like that kind of stuff because I grew up watching, like, these kung fu flicks. And so they would do all these tricks and stuff. And I was like, man, I imagine, like, the sword, you walk up in this, like. He's <laughs> like, never mind, man. I just, never mind. I'm just, I was just, I was, I thought about going, but I don't, I don't want to. So uh, the next question is, was physical pain and childbearing not, not a consequence of Eve's sin? Was it inevitable and bound to happen? I think so. I think so. I think we get the impression, right? So when God created Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply the earth and, and have dominion over this, like, I don't think that was done like, you know, telepathically. Like they just, and animals just come up and then they eat them and then they just, the grass is just cut. Like I think, I think there were real things that happened. And I don't think pain in childbirth is not, that's not a direct result of something that's sinful. It could have just been, 
you're delivering a human being that is larger than the place that it's coming out of. So I think there's an assumption that in the garden, it's everything is just, there's no, no nothing. It's like, I don't know if that was the case. Because think about this, and here's why I think this, one of the reasons why. There's a, I can't remember the passages right now, but it says that when women give birth to children, they forget about the pain of it, right? So they forget about the pain once they hold the child and all of that stuff. And then you have women who have multiple children. Now keep in mind that epidurals are a modern reality, right? <laughs> epidurals weren't happening a long time ago. So women was having multiple kids and was hurt every time, but they quickly forgot about that pain. So I don't think the pain, I think even after the fall, women can forget about the pain and have more children. So I don't think the pain is connected in somehow like it was there before the fall, which to me is, is I think God could allow for that. I don't think pain is always the result of sin. So I think there could have been pain. But the Bible is not clear again. But I do think the translation is not, does not mean it was physical pain. I think it was psychological. I think it was anxious, anxiety, which becomes something unique if you think anxiety is a sin. But that's a different conversation. You guys don't want that smoke today. You're trying to leave so you can watch the Super Bowl. Man, that joint don't start till six something. We That's got true. time. That is true. And my team isn't in it, so I just want to see a good game. Yeah. And then there's that, right? All right, so uh, the next question is, um, verse 17 also mentions pain. And the, the question is, um, could this, and it's in God's judgment on Adam, uh, consequences on Adam. Could this also mean anxiety? Yeah. Could this be uh, the reason why men feel anxious in being providers of, of their household? I 100% agree with that. I think when I read that, I think the word pain in that verse is esib. I think they say that that doesn't mean physical pain as well. So I think they, the, the interpreter, some people would. I'm not saying everyone thinks that way. With this stuff, people can go in a lot of different ways. You can read five commentaries and say five different things and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I actually didn't read the commentary until after I thought I came to the conclusion and then this kind of confirmed what I was thinking. But I think it is, I think it's right. I think it's anxiety. It's the anxiety of provision yeah. the, and the anxiety of the work that you have to do to provide. Mm -hmm. I mean, it said like by the sweat of your brow. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand there are two locations happening in Genesis 1 through 3. There's the world that was created and then the garden. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the language, it says, you will now eat the, the fruit from the trees of the field, not the garden. The garden had its own thing. The field is the earth, the world. So you're going to get out of the garden. You're going to eat from it. So it's a whole different experience. I definitely think that that passage is referring to strenuous, anxious work and the provision of that. And that pressure adds to the, I think, the conflict between husband and wife. 100% I agree with that. Um, uh, two more, two more questions. Uh, this is number one. Um, could you give us practical application for knowing the original sin of pride, entitlement, and complacency? I think the practical application of those is to assume that in some way, shape, or form, that's a part of who we are, and we're trying to. You know, you know the thing about. Growing in the Lord, I think the thing that makes growing in the Lord difficult for Christians is we separate it from, we, 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 we have like, okay, I want to grow in this and grow in that, but we separate it from the put on, right? So we think about the put off. I need to put off being lazy, put off being angry, put off this, but we don't have the put on, right? Mm -hmm. 
I need to put on kindness and put on self-control and put on these things, right? And I realized even for myself, I was praying to the Lord recently, you know, I don't really connect my obedience to specific fruits of the Spirit. But that's what the Lord is telling us to do. So I said, Lord, this year, this year for me is self-control and gentleness. Those are the two fruits of the Spirit that I'm trying to filter everything through. Self-control. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of stuff. They're New Year's resolutions. Mm -hmm. I think believers sometimes, we try to grow in things separate from fruits of the Spirit, and then we lose sight. Okay, good. Yeah, I want to I want to eat better. I want to be more on time for this. I want to do I want to exercise. Well, all those things are cool, but what fruit of the spirit is it connected to? So I think for believers, when you look at the Bible, the New Testament, so much of what is described is not how much you understand. It's what do you do with that? Like the morality, right? There are works, but the uh, but a lot of what you know, when Hebrews 5 it says, "For those who need milk are unskilled in the word of righteousness." What is righteousness? Righteousness is morality. It's holiness. So what the Bible is saying is when you are a milk, when you're not mature, it's not because you don't understand. You couldn't say what I just said on a Sunday. You don't understand all the doctrinal. That's not what the Bible is calling immature. What it's calling immature is you don't know how to obey God. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness. And there are degrees in which all of us, there's some areas where, you know what, Lord, I'm unskilled in the word of righteousness, self-control and some things. And I was like, I got to get it this year. I got to get it this year. I got to get it this year, Lord. I told him that the other day. Got to get it this year. We're all unskilled on some level. What you have to do is figure out what that is for you. And you need to be serious about that and say, you know, but connect it to a fruit of the spirit. Don't just say, I'm trying to grow in reading more. Okay, what fruit of the spirit will that, will that accomplish? Is that self-control? Or are you trying to grow to be, for, is it steadfastness? Maybe you need to persevere. And so for you, perseverance is reading a little bit every day or meditating or praying. I think we disconnect our obedience from actual fruits of the spirit, and then it becomes frustrating because we don't even know what we're doing it for. Right. We know we're trying to obey God in the grand thing, but we focus on the put off. If you just, when you say, I'm just going to try to stop being angry, guess what? You focus on not being angry. That's it. It's all you think about is not being angry. Being angry, which is going to make you angry for not being angry. Then times when you want to be angry, but you're not supposed to be angry. So you get angry at yourself for not being, being angry when you're not supposed to be angry. And all of a sudden, you just got an angry attitude the whole time. But if you put on kindness and gentleness, then you're already fighting anger for this stuff. You know, for me, another one is like, okay, I, I, go to th I got two, those two, and then I go to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not rude, and it does not insist on its own way. And so that's how I think, okay, I'm insisting on my own way. I got into a conflict with my wife last Wednesday, and as soon as I hung up, we hadn't had a fight in a while, but as soon as I hung up, first thing the Lord said was, love does not insist on its own way, and that's exactly what I did. So I was like, man, Lord, please forgive me. I told her the same. But you got to have that. If you don't have that in your mind, it just becomes difficult. Mm -hmm. and it's like you're just swinging, just, you know, you're just swinging at the air. Attach your growth to a particular fruit of the spirit and process that through that. So like, you know what? Self-control. I got to be self-controlled. I'm not doing this. Self-control. I'm not buying this. Self-control. It's not like, well, you know, self-control. This is the fruit of the spirit. That's, what I, that's the practical application that I would give. But don't assume that you're not these things, though. Don't be like, so don't be like Satan and have such a high view of yourself that you're not realistic about your evaluation of yourself. And if you're not sure, then ask someone who you think will 
will tell you, not self-righteously or accuse you, but just in a loving way, ask someone who will tell you, hey, what do you think I need to, because I think we have too high a view of ourselves. And here's how you know it. If you are offended when someone brings things up to you all the time, then you have too high a view of yourself. Because if you think you're not sinful, then what did Jesus die on the cross for you for? Why did you need the cross? Some of us think our attitudes and stuff, we're so used to them that we don't realize they're actually sinful. And they don't honor the Lord at all. And we get so comfortable with them that we don't care anymore. That's a dangerous place to be. And as your pastor and friend and people who love you very much, there are people in this room I'm talking to. They just have, you just, you just, you're giving up. It's the fruits of the spirit that we're after. That's what we need to grow in. That's how we apply, I think, stuff like this. I'm trying to do that. I got a ways to go, but I'm fighting. I'm committed. And I said it's in front of y'all so y'all can hear me say it for accountability's sake. Thank you. Um, last, uh, it's in a similar vein, but it's, it's specific. Uh, would you, what would you have for us, someone asks, who may be complacent or even apathetic to church and living our lives fully for the Lord? I think the first thing you have to do is say what it is to God. You have to say what, don't, 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 listen. Here's what we do, right? We make New Year's resolutions for areas we need to grow in, and sometimes we need to just sit and cultivate conviction. Many of us don't know how to create and live by a conviction. This is what I, let me tell you what I mean. You'll hear a message, you'll be convicted, or you'll sit in counseling, be convicted, but then two days later, be angry, the same or next Sunday, make excuses for why you're not coming. What happened to the conviction? In that sense, we're like Eve. We can't even touch it unless we die, and we move to, but it is good for food. You know what, man? I need to grow in this and be faithful and start coming to church. Next Sunday, I'll go next week. You need to, we need to learn how to take the conviction and then act on how that conviction, instead of thinking that because I agree and feel a certain way right now, that that in and of itself is changed. It's not. Confession of sin is not changed. It just is acknowledging I failed. But then you come up with, so I, I think first, if you're in that place where you're struggling with apathy, look, we get it. I've been struggling with apathy about being self-controlled for a long time. And because I've made progress in other areas, I've made excuses for that. And the Lord, with the help, my mother is one person, like, you need to do something about yourself. My mother will tell me that constantly. The Lord is like, look, this is it. You're being complacent too long. We all are apathetic. Everyone in this room is apathetic to some area that God is like, hey, I love you, but can, we, can you do something about this, please? I love you. Can you do something about it? We're all apathetic. But what we need to do is we need to sit and grow in the conviction. Don't start with, all right, I'm going to do better next week. No, you're not. Because, <laughs> listen, you're not going to do it. You have to sit and be like, you know what, Lord, I need to call this out and acknowledge what this is. There's, there's arrogance, there's pride in me thinking that I can just come to church when I want. Like, like the Lord didn't die to establish congregations. Don't tell me why do we have to come to church. Tell that to the, to the church in the last 2,000 years. Why did they feel like they had to come to church? Don't put this on me and our demands for the church for 2,000 years since Jesus has said that we got to gather together. We need to be together. It's just a reality. People are dying because they gather together. In China, pastors go to, to preach with a briefcase because they might get apprehended. 
They ain't thinking like, look, I, you know, I don't want to leave my family. I can't. They're like, man, I'm preaching. And if they come, I got my clothes with me. My, 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 at least my shirt would be ironed while I'm sitting in a prison cell, <laughs> right? There's a sense where I think for many of us, we, we're trying to do something because we want to fix it. But I think what we need to do is grow in the sorrow and the attitude of conviction. Stop thinking about, oh, I'm coming to church next Sunday, that's it. No, you're not. <laughs> Unless you grow in the heart and you say before the Lord, Lord, this is sinful that I'm not coming. But if you're making excuses for it, then of course you're not going to be here. Of course you're not going to fellowship. We asked everybody in this church to be in a group every week. Our schedules aren't that busy. There's plenty of people that aren't in a group every week. Every week. Cool. But we do these things because we feel like this is what keeps us. People don't feel connected. You don't know people. All that. You just distant. All of that. You got you to gotta learn how to say. So if you're struggling with apathy, then this, this week, just each day, just say, Lord, this is wrong. Please forgive me. You died to establish the church. You've created structures of local churches. I'm a part of this church. And if this is, if this, this is the way you should be, then go to, a, go to a place where you feel like this is where I can be. This is what, but you've got to do it, not because I'm saying it, because the Lord died to establish local congregations across the world of people who gather together, who live life together, because that's what we're going to do in heaven. You're not going to be a by yourself in eternity. So if you like being by yourself now, you're not going to feel comfortable in heaven. And I think if we get to the point where we're too much like that, you might not make it to heaven. Because we're, God is a community God. It's always been three in one. It's always been here. It's always, when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I'm with them, he wasn't saying only two or three should gather. He was saying, he was saying that I am, when two or three are gathered to worship me, I'm going to be there too. He wasn't saying that's the norm. Stay home and you and your family have a worship session. That's not what he's saying. He was saying, listen, I'm present because I love my people. But a lot of us, we just let people do whatever, don't come to church, doing other stuff on Sundays, and just keep making excuses for it. And then don't complain if you're not mature five years from now. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like you can just casually do stuff and then be super godly like, nah. You're going to have attitudes. You're going to have habits and patterns that seem like they're not going nowhere. Because in reality, you would rather stream or watch stuff all day, not come to church on Sunday, but you want the benefits of heaven, but down here, you're living with a conviction to go to hell. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I'm learning this, too. I'm, I'm stepping my I'm learning it, too. It's like, we got to fight for this. This is real. This supernatural thing is real. And the enemy would love to have everybody in here be ineffective and unfruitful for the kingdom. And messages like these are not going to make you effective and fruitful. The conviction that you sow to, that you remind yourself of, that you say to the Lord so that he hears it, that's going to make you. Yep. The Lord, I could be gone tomorrow. The Lord doesn't need me to lead this church. I'm, I'm integral, sure, but I'm not necessary to him. It's you have to have the conviction. I have to have the conviction. And it takes work. So don't start like, all right, I'm coming next week. No, you're not. How many people have they told you, hey, Hey, I, I'm coming to church next week on Saturday, Sunday. You get excited. Yeah, you coming? Yeah, they, they, they would, yeah I'm going to be there, man. I'm, I've got my schedule cleared up and all that. Sunday morning. The number you have reached to four, zero, five, eight. Hey, man, what's up, man? I'm coming, to, you, I'm, I'm coming to get you for church. You coming? You talk about, oh, man, I, oh, man I'm, I'm going to come next week, man. I wasn't. Everybody makes promises. 
but you don't persevere by promises. Right. You persevere by being practical. Yes. What do I need to say to the Lord and continue to say that so that the conviction to obey him is strong? Even meeting with me, counseling with me is not going to make you mature. I'm just going to tell you like, hey, this is what I think and I see and I appreciate that many of you come to me and trust me. I can't make you mature. I can only challenge you to take the conviction to be mature and apply it. I can tell you some things you can do to apply it, but if you don't, of course you're going to be still struggling in this a week from now or this way. In the same way we make, we, in the same way that we make habits for the sins that we're trying to get rid of, we got to make habits for this yeah. to get out of them. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll just stay in them. Yeah. And I'm guilty as charged of that, unfortunately, in certain areas. So, let it. Thank you. I hope you know that when I'm up here teaching, I just I love this church, and I'm passionate. I'm just a passionate person. I'm not a laid back kind of dude. So when I'm speaking, I'm not speaking with force because I'm judging or angry. I'm speaking with force because I care. I'm passionate. Zeal. I love the people in this church. I love the people that have left this church. Most of them. And so <laughs> hey, we just being honest. We human. We being honest. I'm gonna be, my mom told you. You've been feeling since he was born. You've been honest. <laughs> you follow me and feel this off. Most of them. But but I, we care. Mike and I really care. And it does bother us sometimes. It's like, wow, why is this so difficult? We probably have the least busy schedule out of every church that I know. The requirements that we have for people are really five hours a week, maybe, to God, right? Mm -hmm. Go to a, this is to God. You got 168 hours in a week, and we ask you for five of them. And some people complain about that. All right, I'm not going to stand before the Lord and be like, I was being too harsh. I'm going to be like, Lord, it was just, this is basic. I know churches, like, they got meetings on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They want you to give money on Thursday. Friday's good, Saturday night, Sunday, all day. I mean, it's like, y'all would die. Some of y'all would die if y'all were going to them churches. Y'all be worn out. People be like, Curtis, like 12, 15, we got out. Man, I know churches with the pastors is on their second point at 12, 25. Y'all would be, y'all would be blown. We don't require much of you, but you know who requires more of you? The Lord. And we, and he's going to speak to that with, 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 with sincerity, so. All right, let's, let's, let's bring it back to the, the reality of the spiritual warfare that we experience. The promise that God made to the serpent that a woman would give birth to a seed and would crush his authority. That would, that would so funny, he, he corrupted Eve and then, then a, a, a future seed that would be a human being will now come and overthrow his authority and that seed is Jesus. Jesus said as much in John 12, that when I am lifted up, mm. the ruler of this world mm. will be cast out, yeah. and I will draw all people to yeah. myself. Amen. He said as much. And so each week, we do this. But this is only done by people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. You can't remember what the Lord has done if you don't believe it yet. Mm -hmm. So we're asking, if you're, a mem if you're here visiting, we're glad you came. I would love to meet you afterwards. I usually sit up here for a while and talk. And like Mike said, the game's not till 6.30, so I'll be here for a little bit. I would love to meet you, but this is the only part of the service that we would say you should not participate. In fact, you cannot participate because this is reserved for people who have said, I believe in the seed that the woman has, and, I, and, I want, and I'm living to obey him. I'm trying to create, live in the conviction of what the, what the word says. I'm trying to be skilled in the word of righteousness. If you haven't done that yet, I would love to talk to you about what that looks like for you. 
but we'd ask you not to participate in this. But for those of us that do believe and do profess faith, and we're not talking about flawless, I'm flawed. There's, I'm sincere in my faith, but I'm flawed. So we're talking about flawed but sincere people, and that's the majority of people in this room. For us, this is not just a reminder of the cross, primarily that, but it reminds us that God keeps his promises. Because in Genesis 3.16, God said, which they call theologically the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. It's the promise that he will come and crush the authority of Satan. And many of us, because he came, are living, contradicting and fighting against the authority of Satan. And so we remember that his body was broken for us. Let's eat together. And in like-mindedness, we remind ourselves that this blood that was shed is what the juice reminds us of. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.16, that God told the serpent, he's going to crush your head. And we are among those who are actively crushing the authority of the serpent in our lives and the communities around us. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we pray that you would help us to, to look at what our issues are and not to be overwhelming. We might see a bunch of things. Lord, I pray that you would give each of us just one or two areas. Focus here. Give us specific fruits of the spirit that we are to put on and not just focus on putting off or stopping something, but replacing it, replacing what we're stopping, putting something in its place. Lord, I pray for some of us who have lost some of that or much of that desire to do so, but they are not, you have not forgotten them. For Lord, you are sovereign over what I speak and everything I said, I believe you're speaking to those people who were in that place. You have not forgotten them because if you did, you wouldn't have acknowledged and said some of the things you said. You say these things in your word because you want us to remember that you remember us, you see us. So Lord, there is no one in this room watching online or watching it wherever that is so far gone that they can't come back to you. But it may require effort that they're not willing to put in. So I pray, Lord, that you would help them to call it out to you, to be honest, or to get input from people that they trust, not to judge them and be self-righteous. We don't need that. But to be helpful and say, you might want to consider this. Lord, help us to have the Simon of Cyrenes who will help us carry our crosses, not Roman soldiers who will mock us for having them. So, Lord, thank you for your grace and you continue to bless us. Thank you for this series. Thank you for the work you're having me go through. It's been so beneficial for my soul. I thank you for those who it's been beneficial for. May we continue for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, don't forget, if you're a member of the church, Wednesday night here, we have a lot of it. Hold on, hold on, please. The announcements aren't the time to get up. That's kind of like rude. Like, if you're talking to me and I get up and walk away, you'll be like, Pastor Kurt, one, give me 30 seconds. Uh, don't forget to, if you're a member, 730 here. There's a lot that we need to update you on and get your input on some of these things. Uh, and there was one other thing. What, there was one other thing, Matt. Um, uh, JP asked me to ask our uh, parents, please uh, have yes. your children not... Make sure they are not on the stage or at the drums. There have been some things that have happened that we just want to make sure we know what's going on with. So if the children are not allowed up there or on the drums, that'll take care of that. And lastly, um, please 
thank those in children's ministry who've yeah. been in there for a while. Long. If you have children in there, yeah. thank them for serving you today. Yeah. And if you're coming to my house for the Super Bowl, bring your own food. I'm not getting it. It's easier that way. Bring your own food. All right. Love you guys. We'll see you Wednesday night.